0: The overrun is coming to Atlantic City, November 16th, the Nationwide Conference on EMS. We'll be presenting on EMS Education and New Media, talking about how change is here. Register online now. everybody. It's Dan Schwester from The Overrun, and uh, I'm in the office of Dr. Mark Merlin, who is the uh, head of the MD1 program. Hey, Doc. How are you?
1: Good, Dan. How are you? I'm thanks, doing... Thanks uh, for talking to me today. Yeah, it's
0: great. It's great. Um, in this episode, we wanted to give uh, our listeners, you know, an overview of this program. I mean, we, we've been involved with it for a little while. Uh, you've been doing this for quite a while. And, um, you know, kind of give... You know, field clinicians, what, what is a physician response program? What's it going to bring to them? What's it not going to do to them? Um, you know, kind of knock down some of the misconceptions that you might be hearing out there. And I'm sure, sure there's sure. a couple. Uh, so, how does this all get started? I mean, we know the, the emergency story, we know how paramedicine gets started, but how does the idea of actually putting a doctor out on the street, how does this, where does this get started?
1: Well, I think really in the beginning, it got started by Pittsburgh. Um, they started physician field response in, in the uh, 70s, in the late 70s, and um, right when EMS was really starting. And then they built on it in the 80s, so they've been doing it longer than anybody else. I was in college at the University of Pittsburgh, and I saw their field physician response unit uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I said, uh, and I was a paramedic there, and I said one day I want to start a similar program. Um, Those were all the giants of uh, EMS, Uh, those were the Paul Parises and the Ron Stewarts and uh, the Vince Verdals and uh, um, Vince Massasso and and all these amazing people. And they started field, and Ron Roth, and they started field response for for doctors, among several other people around the world who are doing it simultaneously, Mm -hmm. like Europe. Mm -hmm. And I said, one day I want to build the best program in the world. Um, And we've been pretty lucky. I started in 2002 where I basically got a vehicle donated to me by this guy named Rob Warnock who owned a big uh, uh, family-based car company and um, he gave me a vehicle and I started getting all this equipment from all over the place and just basically after my clinical shifts just driving it around. And
0: And that was up in Morristown, New Jersey? That was up in
1: Morristown in 2002. And uh, you know, after that, I, I moved the program a few times. I moved it from there to uh, New Brunswick to Robert Johnson, and then I moved it to New York Beth Israel. When the executive vice president for the Barnabas system came knocking on my door and said, "You know, we want to move this up," and then we turned that into a statewide uh, physician response program. And then what we did was we became a nonprofit. So we actually became a 501c3 a nonprofit, and uh, G1 is not associated with any hospital or healthcare system. And it will respond 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to any town, any municipality, with any organization in the state of New Jersey, with no charge to any patient, any hospital, or any healthcare system.
0: Yeah, I think that's the interesting part about this whole program. It's a charity.
1: Yep, nobody gets charged.
0: Nobody gets billed. There's nothing that goes, you know, balance yeah. billing, insurance, Medicare, CMS. You, you don't worry about any of that
1: stuff. Nope. In fact, You're... every time we respond, it costs us about $3,000. Wow. So every time, so every every time we respond, so we will go anytime anybody calls us. In fact, it's been shown clearly now by several papers published that when an EMS physician uh, gets request and goes to the senior critical patient and improves survival rate.
0: I want to get into that. I, w- I want to even get into the evidence. Um, so when you started this and you're just driving around in this truck and you got lights on, it says EMS physician on the side, what was the reaction?
1: You know, well, I was, I mean, I was a different kind of guy. I was a five-pointer in New Jersey, then an eight-pointer in EMT. And a so you knew, you knew test, the
0: game. You knew who was Right.
1: There. So I had the same disease we all have, which is um, when I <laughs> want to calm down and relax, I go responding on calls, lights, and siren, right? That calms me down, right? <laughs> it, it, it makes me, it's a chaos. Uh, it relaxes me. Calmness agitates me. Okay. Right? So I think I had the same thing. And, uh, you know, you got to keep coming back every single day and then you know i was a classic uh, volunteer on my first aid squad Um, but i did it in a day where you know i i i I was the fifth member on because there was no spots because there were so many volunteers in those days but but to answer your question you know initially um people didn't understand it right and i kind of said i'm the doctor for the paramedics i'm an ems physician is way before board certification or we had official training programs for the most part And, you know, I I think like anything in life, people are skeptical at first, right? They say silly things like you're gonna take over EMS. And no, in fact, we we support EMS, that's that's all we do. Um, And we make your life easier. So we make life easier to paramedics, we make life easier of the first responders of the the EMTs, and we make life easier of the police, right? Because we can make quicker decisions. And, you know, we, most all of us um, who do this for a living have come from the background of uh, the field. Of e m s so we know what the expectations are outside the hospital, and we know it's going to happen inside the hospital and uh we don't delay anything on scene uh we actually just help patients get better care and, and so is that the over,
0: so is that the overriding goal of the program is to deliver better care
1: out there It's to improve survivor rates okay. right that's the bottom line and if you can't improve survivor rates, you just you're making small improvements in patient care. For very specific procedures that you can do okay. and a skill set that that you bring to the table and believe me i'm not a fan of doctors being outside the hospital either i mean it's too dangerous I, i when i was a paramedic emt i hated when doctors showed up on the scene I have the same horror stories half the half of your listeners do, mm-hmm. right? Um, I hated when they would show up. But um, well, we've always
0: had that that story of the uh, the doctor who shows up on your scene, who's there, you know, the podiatrist or the dermatologist right. who's getting involved in a resuscitation. Right. That's, the, even the, that's the apocryphal one, right, right? But
1: even the emergency physician, the average ER <laughs> doctor, only gets six days of pre-hospital care during their entire three to four year. Residency. That's shocking. So the average emergency medicine doctor, who you see in the emergency department, knows nothing about what we do outside of the hospital,
0: and who ninety percent of the time, after he graduates at residency, is going to be handed, okay, you're going to be QAing EMS, or you're going to be interacting with EMS, you're going to right. be, and
1: they don't know what they do a Medical
0: director for these paramedics, and right. they don't know,
1: right, and it's a, it's a shame, but the, and this is why the field of EMS physicians and you know got started, right, and this is why now it's a board certification. So the listeners have to ask their medical director, are you board certified in emergency medical services? Or have you done a fellowship, right? Have you done a fellowship, a training program? Because you can get board certified EMS just like cardiology, gastroenterology, general surgery. Have you completed a training program, an official one year accredited training program after your residency, in emergency medical services, and are you board certified? Cause, right, cause and just to, log- just to
0: break that down real quick, so for the people that don't understand or the people that don't, you know, we're not paramed, you know, not docs or whatever, physician goes to medical school, they do a residency generally, they become board certified uh, in a specialty. This is, a, EMS is now a, recommend, a, a recognized specialty like emergency medicine, like cardiology, yep. like orthopedics. Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, after it, you finish your primary residency. Okay. So first you have to complete a residency in something, in emergency medicine or pediatric emergency medicine or occasionally critical care. But 95% of the candidates have completed a residency in emergency medicine. Okay. The other few people have completed residencies like in pediatric emergency medicine. So some of these people have done up to six years before they come to us okay. for training. We in New Jersey have the largest uh, EMS fellowship or largest training program in the world. Wow. The New Jersey EMS Fellowship training program. We have 10 spots.
0: Yeah, there's so, a, and there's not many. I but, mean, I know the Mayo Clinic has something. I know University of New Mexico Yeah, there's, there's a few. You know, there's, there's, definitely there's a few, but not there's many. There's
1: definitely some fellowships throughout the United States. But uh, most programs are smaller, right? They have zero, one, they have one, two, or three spots. Okay. And so we're the biggest. And we get people from all over the country to come here to do their one year of training. And some of these people have years and years of being street medics, lots and lots of experience. Right. And that's great, but um, you know they, they also they learn other things. They learn a lot of administrative things. They learn about doing high risk procedures outside of the hospital. They learn things that they may not have experience at. So just because you're a paramedic doesn't mean you can be board certified in EMS if you were paramedic before before residency. Okay, it, it doesn't work. So your 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 experience as a paramedic doesn't count toward board certification. You have no. to do the one year training program now that is required. Um, in order to be uh, board eligible to take the written examination. And then when you're done there's a written examination. And the pass rate this uh, past year was like sixty three percent. Okay. So the pass rate so it's hard. This it's is, stringent. It's sixty three. Right. So that's the all these people who've already finished residencies who are very, very intelligent physicians and their pass rate is sixty three percent for right. these are these are services. the top of the pile. These They're, are people
0: who have done fantastic all through college, medical right. school, uh, right. residency, you know, fellowship and that's a test with a sixty-three percent pass rate. The majority wow. of the
1: test is not medicine. Okay, right? it's not medical stuff. It's operation. It's incident command systems. It's um, hazardous material stuff. It's you know it, it's um, you know it, it's all this other operational stuff about stretchers, about types of ambulances, all the stuff that EMTs learn all the time, right? Um, so it's it's most of the questions are operational, and a small percent are actually medical. And even the medical questions or relative to care outside of the hospital.
0: Good. So it's it's really important to understand that if you're if you're a clinician, you're EMT, paramedic, whatever, volunteer paid doesn't matter. You're on a scene, and this this vehicle pulls up. This is not somebody who's a dilettante. This is somebody who is yeah. highly trained, who has been highly highly mentored, highly structured program, and knows what they're getting into. Knows right. the game. Right. So this is a this is a really good resource. This is something that EMS should feel really comfortable about when they see pull up on a scene.
1: Yeah. So. I mean, in our program, for example, um, no matter what kind of experience you have in EMS beforehand, you do like one month of behind the wheel driving. Okay. I mean, they all go through SEVO and then they all have the previous experiences. And some have more than others, but they do one month behind the wheel with somebody else. Okay. And um, we do a lot of stuff about scene safety. They work a lot with law enforcement. We do classes on weapons down. So if an officer drops his weapon, you know how to clear the weapon. Okay. Like these guys learn all that stuff. They do a lot of tactical stuff. Okay. So you know they're thinking like EMS is thinking. That's what that's what I want. Like law enforcement is thinking uh, about the patient. They understand scene safety. They understand body substance isolation. They understand you know safety of you and your crew. They you know they they hear all this all the time. They
0: get it working in a dynamic environment.
1: Right, and this is what these guys who up on the scene want to do with the rest of their lives. This okay. is what they want to do with the rest of their lives.
0: So as a clinician, uh, you know, I'm a paramedic. I, I, you know, what does this bring to my, what does this bring to the table for my patient? What can a physician do? And maybe if I'm sitting there and I've got a physician unit a couple minutes out, three minutes out on a really sick patient, What's that gonna do for me? Right. Where's where's the benefit of maybe sitting there and saying, Hey, you know what, let's have this doctor come on scene. Maybe they can be a, right. maybe. So I tell people
1: benefit. people always say, When should I call you? And the bottom line is when you get to any location and you say we're not getting out of here for a long time, or even before you get there, when you get dispatched to something that sounds to you as an EMS professional like we're not gonna get off the scene for a long time, start us start the physician response vehicle coming, right? And if you get there and the story was there was 20 people and then you get there and there's one patient, then you can cancel. Mm-hmm. It's no big deal. But at least we can start responding because you never know where the doctor's responding from. In the state of New Jersey, they have to be, res- they're, they're somewhere in the state, right? They keep the vehicle with them. Multiple docs keep the vehicles with them. There's six vehicles that get the vehicle with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Who is that vehicle and where they are in New Jersey at that moment could be anywhere, okay. right? Could be anywhere. So what are they going to do that uh, EMS can't do? At first, I guess we have to talk about just like the knowledge base because most of these people were EMS providers and they have knowledge base of going through like an emergency medicine residency, so they have the knowledge base of all this stuff. Plus, they have the knowledge base of being an EMS physician, all the stuff they learn. So no, so what they can do is a variety of things, and one is, um, our physician response unit in Jersey can deliver blood. Okay, but it's not just. The same blood that some people already have. In yeah, the because country. a lot of
0: places are talking about doing blood and it's really packed red cells and plasma or component therapy. Yeah. Whole blood's a lot different.
1: Yep, it's completely different. And there's still some helicopter programs that are giving packed red blood cells and that's that's wrong. Right? I mean what you okay, want to do. Okay, that's a provo- wait a
0: minute, that's a provocative statement. I know you're known for them. <laughs> but packed red cells is wrong tell us about that why
1: right so the war initial studies which show that patients have better outcomes in the field when given packed red blood cells the problem with pack red blood cells is it doesn't stop you from bleeding it doesn't have platelets It doesn't have plasma it doesn't have carb precipitate it doesn't have fibrinogen right okay pack red blood cells has been shown to cause thrombocytopenia which means it decreases your platelet count which means that it actually can make some bleeding worse. yeah not what you want in a trauma right patient so if bleeding you're bleeding patient. internally pack red blood cells replaces what you're bleeding but doesn't help stop you from bleeding when I give you low titer oho blood that has the platelets in the plasma which actually help form a clot from wherever you're bleeding internally this is really important number one number two is my one unit of low titer oho blood is equal to multiple units of packed red blood cells multiple units of plasma multiple units of platelets and all the clonic factors, all the fibrinogen, everything else. Okay. So my one is equal to a mass transfusion protocol of lots and lots of really, really good so stuff.
0: So the sum really is bigger than the parts?
1: Yes. So, th- so that's a big deal. Number two is it's not just regular whole blood. It's low titer or whole blood.
0: Okay, And explain that.
1: So, so low titer basically means this number, less than 1 in 256, which basically means the likelihood of having a transfusion reaction okay. is pretty much nothing. Okay. So we get notified periodically when we give
0: And just for, the, just for the gang out there, a transfusion reaction is probably the most serious complication of a blood transfusion. It can cause death. It can cause coagulopathy. Yeah. You can have can
1: major cause- transfusion reactions and minor transfusion okay. reactions, right? And those people can get really, really sick. So classically in medicine, we've gotten like a little sample of blood and we've given it to uh, providers and so they can test it, right, okay. to make sure it's not going to be a transfusion reaction. What's interesting, though, if you, if you look at like the Korean War, when everybody used to get low or whole blood, they gave 400,000 units and nobody had a transfusion reaction. That's nobody. interesting. We get our blood from Texas. Texas so far tells me that they've gotten zero transfusion reactions. Andy Fisher was uh, a famous guy, just published a paper in Journal Special Ops, which looked at the first, I think, 3,900 units of low or whole blood that have been transfused recently. And he had zero major transfusion reactions and zero minor transfusion reactions. That's this is impressive. incredibly, incredibly safe, less expensive, right? And the, what we do now in most trauma centers is we give components, meaning we get packed red blood cells, and then we add fresh frozen plasma to that, and then we add platelets to that. Right. Low titer or whole blood is all the blood, plus it's low titer, so it's an incredibly, incredibly safe to do. And the reason we can do this is because of a device that was uh, made by a company. Called the uh, the com it's combat medical box, okay. and we can actually keep the blood by and it's FDA approved box for anywhere from seventy two to one hundred and ten hours, depending on which box we use. where We just have to change these FDA approved ice packs every seventy two to one hundred and ten hours, um, and it keeps the blood cold without having like a shore line and plugging everything right in. How long does
0: the blood last?
1: Yeah, so low-tide to a whole blood lasts for approximately thirty-five days. Okay, I say approximately because it depends how quickly you get it from where the blood is, the blood bank. So we don't actually store our blood, right? We don't actually we store no blood, mm-hmm. right? Once we get it from Texas, we put it right out onto the street to to for the patient. And you don't really want to store whole blood because platelets tend to go bad pretty quickly. So you want to give it as quickly as possible. But it's a it's approximately thirty-five days. Pack red blood cells is about forty-two days or so. Okay. Um, some people are giving plasma, right? And that's okay. And the reason people can't give low titer or whole blood is because we just, we don't have the ability to manufacture it. I get mine from Texas. In New Jersey, there's only one other place in the entire state that gives low titer or whole blood, only one, and that is in a trauma center. The other nine trauma centers don't give it. In 10, 15 years, they will, right? But they right. don't right now because nobody's manufacturing it, Um in, in most places. There's only 20 centers in the entire United States that are carrying low or whole blood. And there's only, I believe four of us now outside the hospital in the country that are giving it. So in New Jersey, we're giving the greatest type of blood possible. And we're big believers in no crystalloid, right? Which right. Um, you may think is controversial, I don't.
0: No, I don't think it's controversial. Right? Um, I think some people do, but not Yeah, yet. too many
1: people do, um, but you know, that's, not, uh, not, that's just not us pre-hospital. That's in most hospitals. Yeah, there,
0: you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people on the Internet who uh, argue against the use of pasta water for saving lives. Right. <laughs> you know, so
1: I always tell people that nobody bleeds normal saline or crystal or lactate ringers. No. So why are we giving it with linear cloning factors? Ken Maddox kind of helped prove this to us about 20 years ago. But if you think about it, like, why are we giving fluid when somebody's bleeding blood? Right? It, right, isn't it just? But and the reason is because nobody stood up in class and said, "This sounds kind of silly to me."
0: So I think because is, we, because we have this this idea that we have to chase a blood pressure or we have to you know get the vital signs normalized, and and that's not necessarily the case, right?
1: Because everybody's afraid of a little hypotension during trauma. And, and by the way, what we're specifically talking about is NCTH, non-compressible trunkal or orth, or thorax hemorrhage. Okay. Right. So you're bleeding into the box. You're bleeding into your chest, or you're bleeding into your belly, or even you are sometimes you're bleeding externally too. And um, so you have ongoing bleeding, right. right? And now your body's trying to form a clot. Now mm-hmm. you give normal, uh, a crystalloid, and now you're destroying that ability of the body to make a clot. How does the body form a clot if, if n- nothing is given? And the answer is, you have a low blood pressure, right? Let's say you're bleeding from oftentimes from a, a blood vessel that comes off of zone two in the aorta, kind of the middle of the aorta, and it's trying to form a clot. And here you go, and you try and get that blood pressure up too much, and you're destroying the ability to body to make it clocked. So a little hypotension trauma right. is not the worst thing in the world. Our goal is not to get back to you know 120 over 80. Just mm-hmm. think about this: a trauma patient back an ambulance, lights and siren. Normally, that blood pressure would go way up. Sure. And now you get there, and the blood pressure is like 90. And I want people to say this is really good. Right. Right. You don't have to go chasing back to where they were before. 90 is not such a bad thing. You know that's that. You know that is good enough a little hypertension helps them form that clot. And now I come along and I give low titer or whole blood and this is why people's lives get saved. So for that person who's trapped in a car his blood pressure is 50, unfortunately in 2019, advanced life support around the world has nothing to offer that patient. Now there are a few exceptions. There's Harris County 48, there's, um, there's a few other places where they're actually giving low tight or whole blood on the paramedic units. Okay. But these people don't need pack red blood cells. You know, in the words of John Holcomb, who, who will help me figure this out? Number one is low-titer whole blood. Number two is plasma, and number three is there's no number three.
0: Right. Is there any way? Is there any role for crystalloid, like for that patient who has that that map of fifty right. who's in who's trapped in that car, so and I don't is... have a doctor unit there. Right. You know, is 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 there something to giving a tiny bolus, like a bolus that we wouldn't even consider a right. bolus? So this was
1: what we were all hoping for a few years ago: freeze-dried plasma, which doesn't have to be refrigerated, right? And this would potentially be a game changer in EMS. The military uses this. It's not it's not cleared for the civilian world right. yet. We have to see what the price point is going to be. If it's going to be more or less than low-titer whole blood, that will probably make a big difference. But I definitely think that that will be potential f- uh, fluid for us um, to give to patients. But, right, so what do you do? The blood pressure is fifty now forty, and the paramedic says, you just want me to do nothing, then you know, it 's a trauma patient who's bleeding, and I give fluid and I know if I give fluid you know i 'll increase the va- you know i 'll decrease the vascular space, and i 'll subsequently make the blood pressure go up a little bit isn 't that better than a low blood pressure And the answer is i don 't know it 's not like we have um, studies where people can randomize when, you know, their blood pressures are 50 to either get fluids or not get fluids, right? We don't have that literature. But most people think that giving those patients crystalloid is not the right thing to do. Okay. Some people will say, well, I give a little fluid bolus of 500, and, um, and I see what happens. And, you know, listen, there's a few more people who are saying that. There are a lot of small people who are saying don't do anything. And can I tell you that giving 500 fluid bolus for somebody's blood pressure is 50 stuck in a car is killing them? I would never say it's killing them. I think there's theoretical reasons to believe that that's not helping them. Okay. There's some theoretical reasons to believe that's harming them. and is there could we be helping some people? I don't know listen, you have ongoing bleeding with your with a blood pressure of fifty. you're never going to have a study that says you're better outcomes by giving those people fluids because they're bleeding internally. That's too sick a group to ever show a better outcome based upon crystalloid. It will never happen in a study. So maybe
0: the best thing is we give the TXA and yeah we just get early txa
1: i mean listen besides crash three we have the london study which shows early you know london clearly showed earlier is better and you know for you know and then for every delay in in getting a a, a txa your you know survival goes down by between 10 to 15 percent depending on what part of the study you looked at and um so early txa is really 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 important right so we know that but listen if you're bleeding internally into the box and you're hypotensive you know, that's problematic. And this is why some little or whole blood may be a good thing. And then the other topic is reboa, you know, which is um, uh, an interesting thing that is balloon occlusion aorta that is definitely scary where you can blow up a balloon with partial reboa for like 10 minutes in zone one of the aorta and actually decrease the blood flow to where they're bleeding from, right? Kind of like
0: an internal cross clamp.
1: Yeah, sort of. You thread a catheter
0: yeah. up into the aorta, you inflate the balloon, and the yeah. idea is to tamponade. A hemorrhage that's below a general the way to think
1: about it. The site. And um, and all you're really doing is forming clots. Okay. Right? Again, it's a little scary. I don't know that it's um, it's not very easy to do. You can't do it without ultrasound guidance and good access to your common femoral artery, which is not easy when you're hypotensive and you're bleeding because the common femoral artery is. Or will you're
0: entrapped if you think most of your motor vehicle crashes, things How like that. How do you that. get to the groin? How do you get there?
1: Right. And okay. that's not easy either. But I do know that I, all I need to do is get to any blood vessel to put in blood. Okay. Right? I can give it in your freaking foot. Right? <laughs> you know, I, I can give it anywhere. Right? I just need to get to some place to give it. And all I need to do is switch out your crystalloid. Now, listen, and we're not just about trauma, right? Because GI bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage, anytime you're losing blood. But what would happen for most people in the United States when they go into some hospital or even pre-hospital with GI bleeding, and the answer they are going to get crystalloid, right? Because this is the time of change.
0: It's cheap, it's available, it's there. And change and is
1: painful, right. and change takes a while. And this is what we have, um, this is what we fight. And, you know, every year there'll be more people that are doing it this way, but there are people who won't go down without a fight because they don't want to just stand there and do nothing. And I, and I understand that, but maybe that is the best thing to do, right? So,
0: okay. So what else? What else does the unit bring to the table? So we talked about blood, and that's a game changer. Right. We talked about a little bit about Rebo, the ability to actually go in on somebody who say they have a crushed pelvis, say they have some kind of major injury, and you can actually kind of tamponade that for a t- time. being. get these. This is these are people who would die otherwise, right? right?
1: Well, I mean, so what else? We have sixty medications. We have a lot of medications paramedic units don't carry. Okay. Right. From intravenous capra to dilantin to presidex to propofol, to phytostigmy. So we have a lot of drugs paramedic units don't carry um, to, to really help people. So that, that you know, a so really that's
0: complicated there. status seizure, this might be something you guys can bring more to the right. table than we
1: can. I mean, how often is that going to happen? Well, listen, somebody's in a motor vehicle collision with a head trauma, and they're going to status epi. You know, I mean, that's great. I mean, we, we can fix that, right, okay. for, the, for, you know, for the most part when, when benzos don't work. Are we the guys to call when, you have a, when you're on scene with a seizure and you give a dose of Ativan, doesn't work? Um, probably not, and the reason is because we're probably never gonna get there in time, depending on where we are, sure. where we're coming from. So this is why the main benefit is when your, your response time, your time to get somebody to the hospital or provide definitive care is going to be delayed. What else do, to answer your question, what else do we bring? But we have seven ultrasound machines, seven different types, including butterfly ultrasound machines several paramedic units and helicopters have that around the country so that's not necessarily new except the docs have a few years of training in ultrasound right so okay. they tend to be really really good out doing quick things like looking on the heart all things that can be done en route to the hospital or in the in in in, uh, um, in, the, in the back of a car we had somebody in trap for three hours my doc was there this was up in morris county and my doc ultrasounded the person from head to toe he knew nothing was wrong with the guy so wow um, so he knew nothing was wrong so with the It's patient. a
0: way to really look inside the body. You can, you can tell. You could use it in an MCI. Like, who needs to go to surgery absolutely who is now? Who has blood in their and, belly. Right.
1: right. You always say, and always say you never want to be the last red tag, right? But right. now you can look in the belly and say who has blood and Morse's pouch in the belly and who doesn't. I mean, in 30 seconds, I can know who, you know, blood in the belly. 30 seconds, I can know things like is the lung collapsed with much better way than listening for lung sounds, which is terrible when with external noise. Right? Sure. Um, 30 seconds, you know, I... I can know what the general heart function is, you know, and then if the guy's entrapped and there's, and I'm still looking, I can see if the carotid artery dissected, you know, I, I, I can see, you know, I can look at the, if the, if the bladder is ruptured, you know, there's okay. a lot of little things. I can look for vascular injuries. I can look for, you know, dislocations of, you know, balance. Now do you have the
0: ability, does that, does that, mission? does the butterfly and the ultrasounds have the ability to transmit that to a receiving facility? Um, So it does
1: have the, it's Bluetooth capable, so we can transmit it, right? So the the answer is yes. Okay. Um, Because the images are stored in the cloud. Okay. Um, So we have multiple different types. That would
0: would be a game changer. That's a cool thing to actually have an ultrasound to be able, you know, that trauma surgeon at the hospital is looking and saying, well, you know.
1: We also have bronchoscopes, so we have bronchoscopes and ENT scopes. So the bronchoscope, um, so we have several video laryngoscopies, like most EMS, like many uh, ALS systems have, right? Correct. Right. But we also have bronchoscope, so it's disposable bronchoscope, right? And it's just like a real in terms of the functionality of it, and you plug it into a monitor, and we can actually totally manipulate it, um, and put the endotracheal tube over it, cool. and then we have little snares where something somebody has a foreign body in their bronchial tree, we can actually pull out that foreign body.
0: So for a really, really difficult intubation where you've got an access problem and this patient needs an airway, you can't, for whatever reason, let's say you can't do surgical, you can't do right. percutaneous, you can't, you, you can't do it traditionally. So if it's a
1: difficult airway, I would grab the VL like most okay. like ALS would. So if we're there, then ALS will do their video laryngoscopy. And let's say they say they can't um, get it because of VL for one reason or another. Instead of just cutting the neck, which we can easily do, um, I would grab the bronchoscope and try with the bronchoscope as, like, the next level uh, uh, of device to use after the VL. Okay. Right? The other thing is the bronchoscope, it will be really good in different positions, like if somebody was sitting up, because you can completely manipulate the bronchoscope okay right so that would be really good in like just weird positions and you can just see the video screens so you can see everything around them we also have emt scopes right we, we use it sometimes if people have say think they have a, a sensation of a foreign body in the upper airway okay we can just uh, look really quick right so um we also have transesophageal echo so te is a big thing we just published the first paper and presented it at the emsx yeah, go
0: more into this because this is a really interesting development and, and the, the, the potential for patients in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to actually maximize our CPR, maximize our compressions, maximize blood flow to the brain is something that this does really well.
1: Right. So we all know we don't want to interrupt compressions. That's right. sort of like straightforward now. The number I always quote is every 5, 6, you interrupt compressions. survival goes down by 17%. The biggest circulation study ever done. Every 5, 6, you interrupt compressions. survival goes down by 17%. So what's the answer? Don't interrupt compressions. No. So, not to intubate, so, so not regular to put fluid in, nothing. Yeah. So regular ultrasound is great. The problem is there's a big study which showed that when you do regular ultrasound, right, being the sort of kind you can put on the chest, you interrupt compressions right. when you look at the heart. right. So that's, that's a problem. So this is why transesophageal echo is starting to get popular in emergency departments throughout the United States. So I just decided I want to take it one step further. Somebody invented a disposable device. right. So there's only two, people, two of us who are using it outside the hospital. We were the first people. And New Mexico's doing it, but they have a non-disposable type, which okay. isn't practical for a field unit, which is traveling all over the state. Okay. So we do this and basically think about this. In 2019, we still don't know where to place your hands in the CPR.
0: That's, we, that's scary.
1: Right, we don't know. And people say, oh, I've been teaching, I've been an AHA instructor for 50 years. <laughs> I know where to place it. And the answer is, that's great, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is, I don't know where your heart is, right? When I stumble across in cardiac arrest, some people are rotated to the left, some people rotate rotated to the right, some people have big hearts. I mean, in fact, most of our patients don't have normal hearts, right? Can We we have to agree with that. Most of our patients, the size of the heart is just probably not normal, and it's shifted a little bit,
0: right? Right, I mean, people have hypertrophies, they have right. you know, other so, histories that preclude them than being, maybe scar tissue, right. we, we don't know.
1: So we bought into the fact that when we do good CPR, we're going to help forward flow. We're gonna help the flow we're gonna squeeze the heart. There's two models of how CPR works. There's actually a great study done about two, three years ago, uh, which actually looked at both models and says we don't completely know which model's still correct even in 2019 or 2018 when the study was done. But um, we should just say that sometimes when you do perfect CPR, according to the American Heart Association, you don't help forward flow of the heart. You actually impede it. And how could that be? And the answer is, you sometimes compress on a left ventricular outflow tract, or the proximal aorta, okay. or the aortic valve.
0: So define an outflow tract for like they don't get this in EMT school, doc.
1: Right. So there's so there's a left ventricle, right, and where the blood leaves the left ventricle, right, okay. the right. So between the aorta and the left ventricle, you know, a little more proximal is called left ventricular outflow tract. Okay. So that's where blood leaves the left ventricle, right? Okay. Because in life, what you care about is your left ventricle, right? Like when we say somebody's having a inferior wall MI or a superior wall or, or a lateral wall MI, we don't mean of the heart. We mean of the left ventricle.
0: Right. Because that's the systemic pump. That's the, the act, thing that feeds right? everything. So
1: people get heart attacks or their right ventricle? Yes, sometimes. But, but and their right atrium? Sometimes. But really, the money is in the left ventricle. Okay. Right? So, so if you compress on this, then you prevent blood from going forward and you actually, it doesn't actually move or it goes backwards, right, one of the two, right? Either way, not good. Either way, not good. So what can I do? Well, I could come along and do a transthoracic echo, right, which is what some systems have in the world, but again, we'll interrupt compressions. So what I can do instead is I can do a transesophageal echo, which means I take the tube and I put in your esophagus, just like paramedics can do in our state. They can do nasogastric or gastric tubes. Sure. We don't do it that much because it's not really that indicated. But by the way, when anybody gets intubated um, and then brought to the hospital, we put in nasogastric or, or gastric tubes in 100% of people. Right. Yeah, I, always, you have to I, I was always taught
0: that that's something you really should shoot to do, but.
1: Because, right, because um, you still aspirate around perfectly placed and inflated endotracheal tubes. Right, but there's still aspiration around them, so you have to you have to decompress the stomach. Period. It's good for a million reasons, but you you should do this. Now,
0: and it's easy. It's standing orders for most of us. It's right. not something that it's not difficult.
1: So if I put in the transesophageal echo probe, it goes into the esophagus. Not only do I not have to interrupt compressions, I don't even need to go near the patient. Right, the patient's already intubated. I, I slip things in. So in a perfect world, if you close your eyes and you put tubes into the mouth. By, by just by force of nature, it will go into the esophagus. That's where tubes want to go, into the esophagus. So I put this in Yeah, blindly. The majority
0: of paramedic students see that. <laughs> so I do this blindly, right?
1: So I put, the, I put the tube in blindly, and it goes into the esophagus, right? Okay. And then I can see the heart. And I can see the heart much better than... Um, I can see the heart uh, much better than um, a transthoracic.
0: Because you don't have interference from the rib cage, the lungs, exactly. anything else.
1: And then I can see you do CPR. Okay. But now I can see when well, you do compressions, if you're actually pressing on the left ventricular outflow track or the, or the proximal aorta. And I can tell you to move your hands two inches to the left or two inches cephalad or caudad, or I can tell you to move your hand in different directions. Okay. And now I can maximize the patient's forward flow based upon this. So there's a push now in ERs, which right now academic ERs, to start doing this in all cardiac arrest patients. And we're getting there. I mean, every year there's a few more ERs around the world that are doing this, and eventually this will become the standard. I just wanted to make it the standard pre-hospital right now. The problem is the machine right now is a little big and it's very expensive. But the new generation machine will come out in the next year or so, and it'll be much, much smaller, and, um, and it'll be much easier to use. And then every few years, it'll be more practical, more practical, more practical, till we could conceivably do it on the ALS level.
0: Okay. That makes sense.
1: So improve CPR, right? Again, now, are we going to most cardiac arrests? Well, the thing is, as you know, most cardiac arrests are being run on the scene, right? Because we all do bad CPR en route to the hospital, so most cardiac arrests... It's not
0: safe. It's generally... Yes. Nah, it's generally it doesn't work either.
1: So, and remember, I said my big criteria for calling a vision and response unit is when you say we're not getting out of here for a long time, and most of the cases are cardiac arrests. Okay. But you're not getting out of there because one, you're running the cardiac arrest on the scene, and two, if you decide to transport, then you have to try and transport down two flights of steps or whatever you're doing to get to the ambulance.
0: It, it doesn't work. Right. It just, it just doesn't work, and it leads to pauses and compressions, and I don't think it improves outcomes at all. Right. So.
1: So that's, you know, that's one thing um, I mean, I should say, that's another thing we, we have besides the 60 medications. And then we have field amputation equipment. So we have bone saws, we have full surgical trays, we have what's called chest tubes. So if somebody has a pneumothorax, um, and they're trapped in a core, we can either put a pigtail catheter in, which is like a long white catheter. And, um, that will help get rid of a tiny bit of blood, but help continuously get rid of air in the chest. And then, if there's a big hemothorax, which there oftentimes is for when you have like a rib fracture or multiple rib fractures, then we can put a big chest tube in and that can help drain the blood. And drain the blood is really important because that actually helps the lung re expand okay. and helps um, compress bleeding vessels, oftentimes intercostal vessels, from rib fractures, right? This is why um, re expansion of a pneumothorax is so important to do it really quick because you're compressing on actively bleeding vessels and most of the time an, a hemothorax is being caused by intercostal bleeding from rib fractures
0: hmm. okay
1: and they're just saying in trauma that uh, isn't always true but for every one rib fracture you have you lose about 200 milliliters of blood so this okay. is why when you have somebody with multiple rib fractures or a flail chest you know, you just got to hope that that uh, there's not that much bleeding in the chest, but there oftentimes is, and that's a delay.
0: Right, and these are, these are really sick people. Right,
1: when you get to a location and the guy has multiple rib fractures, you go, well, now I'm worried about ongoing bleeding in the chest, period. Right?
0: Okay. So, you bring a lot to the table there's a lot that you can use to augment and and you know it's interesting that you know I've heard you speak about this before you talk about the field physician response as an augment of what EMS is it kind of just kind of like uh, like supersizes it so to speak
1: yeah we don't interfere with anybody's operations so people say how do you want us to do this i say you do it the way you normally do it right cuz everybody has different way they do business right you're going to do your business as usual, and I'm just going to make your life a little bit easier by cause by by having our field response vehicle come and take care of the patient. Right. All the docs, by the way, we take out a big medical malpractice policy on everybody, so that means that they have the same medical malpractice that they do in the hospital, no different whatsoever. There's only really one person left in the United States who's writing uh, policies medical malpractice for field physicians. That's it. Really? and so we have a big policy to do any procedure right so when, so when we need to uh, do some procedure right here on the street we're not being covered by the good samaritan law we're being covered by an actual malpractice policy that's protecting the doctors by doing this life-saving procedures because i don't want the doctors to ever think you know what's my legal risk for doing this they, okay. don't, they don't have to think about it and um, and then MD1, we have a very robust uh, board of people to try and help us get donations, because ultimately that's how we survive, by corporate matching, by by Amazon Smile. Let me just say that everybody yeah. everybody should only buy stuff on smile.amazon.com and put MD1 as your charity, and I think we get 0.5%. Okay. For every purchase, yeah, we can
0: definitely plug all that stuff, and we'll link to it in the show notes, and um, yeah. we'll definitely put it out on social. Um, media. And then corporate
1: matching by different policies and donations, and and then we have companies that give us uh, give us um, equipment, right. um, And people like who align with us, such as Overrun, you know, to to put it out there, and we'll go anywhere in New Jersey, and, and for events, by the way, we go into multiple states. Okay. You know, and even other countries too. So the docs. We will fly our docs anywhere in the world. We usually do a couple of times a month. We're flying them all over the place.
0: Yeah, you do fixed-wing response too, right?
1: Yeah, we do a lot of fixed-wing. Right? So what's
0: what's that like?
1: So, I mean, just this past two or three months, we've had doctors in Moscow, in Nairobi, in a couple to Bermuda, Kuwait, um, Dubai. Wow. So uh, the docs will tell you, like, it's great. You know, there are some they're going into other countries where people oftentimes have gotten into bad traumas for a variety of reasons, sometimes road vehicle collision, sometimes rock climbing, and then they need to be brought back and they need to be brought back usually to uh, tertiary care centers near where they live. And okay. that's usually where they wanna go. And we'll fly them back anywhere in the world. And we do this with a, a plane company called uh, uh, Medway Air Ambulance, which is the largest in network air ambulance in the country. And um, um, they're medical planes, right? So they're all like ICUs in the air. Right. So the docs will do that. Um, all the time. We could be called at any moment just to go somewhere and pick up a patient and, and then fly them back. So we always have doctors on call for uh, flights. We have doctors always on call for tactical because you know, the docs go on about 10 tactical jobs per week, so they're really busy with that. And then we always have uh, one to three people, sometimes more, on field response. Right? So an email,
0: So this fellowship is a high-speed, fast-paced grind. It's a lot of
1: work. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of work. Um, but one ones always on call. But I guess to take our messages, MG one is always on call. If you call us, then people will not get charged. Mm-hmm. It's been clearly shown that when you're calling physician to the scene, patients have better chance of survival and better outcomes. Anybody can call us from BLS to ALS, to police, to fire, right, call us. If you're with the sick patient, if there's any delay on scene, right, um, people will have better chance at a good outcome by giving us a call. And if somebody's entrapped in a vehicle and they're in, you know, no matter how they're trapped, entrapped, if they look okay now, they could look sick in a few minutes. So if you call us... Get call ahead us, of the curve. Get ahead of the curve. Right. right. You see
0: that we're going to be here a little while, and this is something you might want to start asking, hey, is there a doc around? Is there somebody right. available that can right. get
1: over? And her? the truth is that if, if you, you know we get there and the guy's extricated and you check the patient out is it a BLS or ALS and if you don't need us that's okay like we'll leave you know we don't go there to take over the scene. Right? Yeah, I
0: think that's an important thing because one of the things that I've heard talking to people about this um, is, oh, well, you know, I, I don't want some doctor from up there, someplace I don't know coming on scene telling me what to do and how to do my job or, or they're going to take us over or something. Like, there's a lot of crazy ideas out there. Right. And, and that's not what this is about. Right.
1: Uh, to me, that's just silly. T- take somebody over, we barely have time to get to our own houses now. Right at night. <laughs> We're not going to take anybody over. We will go to any location, improve the outcomes of your patient, not charge anybody, and we will work with your team. And we're happy, by the way, to go anywhere and show all of our equipment and stuff to uh, to to anybody, any location.
0: Right. Right. And one of the things that what we're doing is there's going to be a we're doing a training piece, and that's actually going to be out to squads, and uh, that is going to be available for the docs to come out and right. do a program at your facility at your station to talk about md1 and the yeah. basics and and give you a background on that i mean generally when we show up at a scene we find find
1: out who the ems branch director is if it's an if it's mci or something and then we'll touch base with them we'll set up our equipment in the ambulance that's going to transport whenever the guy's extricated mm-hmm. and then you know you know we'll gown up depending on what you know what's wrong with the patient and then we'll hang out and wait Right, and we'll wait with you know the ALS or BLS crew until the patient is extricated. You know, so we're we're hanging out.
0: So there's really no downsides.
1: I can't think of any downsides. Right, there is there is no downside.
0: And it's evidence based that there are there is evidence to support it. Right, and you know it brings a lay. I I can speak that for myself having docs on scene. It's very nice. I mean, like I know we're a medical control state where you have to call, but when you got a physician on scene, you don't have to call for orders. They're yeah. right there, and it's yeah. really easy, and it and it, it works very right. smoothly. People always
1: ask about you know what happens, you know what happens with regulations and stuff. You know, there's there's written regulations in New Jersey, but what to do when the physician's on on the scene? And I would say just follow them. You know, it's totally fine. If you want me to call. Your doctor at the, you know at your base, like that's totally okay. I'm happy to call. My docs are happy to call and speak to anybody you want. Sure, right? It's totally fine and have and a, another, have, and have another, a nice conversation. Right. And another
0: them. real advantage to this is think about it. You know, you call in. You know, especially in, in our state or other states where you have medical control physicians, they're in an ER, okay, or an ED, and they're they probably got twenty other patients, and right. now they got to pick up a phone. Right. They don't. You don't have their full attention all the time.
1: Right. People this just, is
0: this right. is your own. Here's the way I've looked at it. It's like this is your own personal doc. He's there with you. He sees what's going on. He's not going to draw you into a bad situation. He's going to give you the things you need to do to do your job. He's going to understand how you're thinking too. And he understands too. how your thought
1: process. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I don't get these questions too much anymore. But somebody asked me once, "What if the doc disagrees with my base station physician?" Uh, and the, with a guy having chest pain mm-hmm. my response is one m- you know the ems physician's not going to be on location too much when somebody's having chest pain right right unless they're driving past it and right. usually they'll stop by say is you need anything and right. usually somebody says yeah you want to look at this ekg before you go and the doc will say sure it doesn't matter what the what the patch is on their on their on their shirt shirt sure. right and um and then they'll talk about it, and the doc will usually, like, leave, right? Right. And unless the paramedic or EMT wants them to stay for whatever reason. But I can I usually answer by saying, I don't know. That scenario hasn't happened in the last 10 years where somebody's disagreed because we're more interested in, like, working with people, right? right? And, and you know, listen, this is medicine. You know, we, we oftentimes disagree a little bit with each other, right? But that's okay. As long as there's no harm coming to the patient – there are multiple different ways to get to the same answer or the same conclusion, right? And just because your way is different from mine, it doesn't mean your way is wrong, right? So we can do it your way. That's okay. Right.
0: Right? So how how do we contact you? Where where can somebody go to learn more about MD1? Where can they learn if they're somebody that's interested in maybe donating or volunteering some services? Right. or. You know, anything like that. Where so to go? make
1: it easy, most everything is on our website, okay. which is just md1program.org. So it's md1program.org. the number one, program.org, right? okay. And uh, most everything on the, is on the website and is connected through that website. Um, for dispatch, you know, we have relationships with multiple counties in New Jersey, and we're going to more and more every single day. So we can be dispatched any particular way that a county thinks is most appropriate for them, if they have some like proprietary app.
0: So most so, people know that they can go through their local dispatch or their county dispatch agency just like they do with a helicopter response or something like that and say, hey, can I get a field physician?
1: Right, we can do anything. You know, for um, as a general, so as a general fallback, we, we will we will use um, Monarch's dispatch center okay. uh, and a number, which is what we have uh, on our phones for okay. everything. But if there's a county that uh, wants to use only their dispatch system, like I Am Responding or E-Dispatch or Active 911, we are totally fine doing that, too. We have okay. a great relationship with Gloucester County. So like, for example, we have formed relationship with counties, like we formed a relationship with Gloucester County. We actually have a doc driving around Gloucester County one day a week. Okay. Now, they can call us twenty four hours a day, seven days a week for somebody entrapped, but if the entrapment is not that long, we're probably not going to get there. If it's a long entrapment, we will get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, we just go into the area and drive around for several hours, one day a week, and go on routine stuff because we have a relationship. So we're happy to have those kind of relationships with anybody. We do the same thing with Trinitas. We go and drive there for a few hours okay. a week. And then we spend the time driving around Monmouth and Ocean County. But um, but we will go anywhere in New Jersey. Uh, and we do. We get calls for any, We get called all over the state Um, so anybody can give us a call
0: okay and if you're a if you're a uh, emergency medicine resident or a med student you're thinking of that this is the life for you being an EMS physician and being on call 24 hours a day and driving all over and doing things in the middle of the street how how does somebody find out more about right
1: so I always say be careful of the lifestyle Uh, and we only take the top 1% of doctors so Generally, after medical school, you do a residency, and then you, you can come and rotate with us. You can rotate with us as anything, from an EMT, a paramedic. You can rotate with us as a medical student, a resident. And you, know, you can just spend—we're on the road a lot, right? So you can just spend a few hours driving around with us, going on some routine calls. Because sometimes we just hear stuff, and we call to the dispatch center and ask if they need us or— Um, We will look and see at people's dispatches, and we will call and ask permission to go. Mm -hmm. And um, once we get permission, then we will just go ahead and and respond. So we could show up on something more routine, right? Right. It just depends what's going on.
0: Okay. All right. So uh, that's pretty much EMS physician response. Um, Where are you going to be presenting next?
1: Next will be at the New Jersey OEMS conference. Okay, I the nationwide conference the, on yeah. EMS. Or
0: yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I just got back from uh, EMS Expo, and then uh, was in Boston after that. But um, that is, uh, I, we're I think we have three or four lectures. My team okay. does and one of the, my lectures on uh, physician field response, and we'll have some equipment there. Okay. But most importantly, we're going to be on the exhibit floor. Yeah. So That's what I wanted. To, yeah. We will have the vehicle with a bunch of infographics and some other like handouts um, but we will be on the exhibit floor the entire conference we're just at the uh, EMS Council of New Jersey um, we're just at their uh, exhibit hall okay and um, uh, for their conference in Parsippany and now we're going to be in Atlantic City and then after that I'm actually going to give this year's lecture Uh, or maybe next year's lecture at National Association of EMS Physician meeting on the future of physician field response, which will be in San Diego, I believe, in in January, January 11th.
0: It's not a bad time to be
1: there. It's not a bad time to be there. Of course not. Uh, but Atlantic City, we're all looking forward to. So. Yeah,
0: Atlantic City is going to be great. We're going to be there. Um, as uh, some of our listeners know, we're going to be talking uh, to MD One. We're going to be there. We're going to be doing some Facebook Live from there. Uh, some some hits. You're going to see some in um, some in depth stuff. I know they were we were talking about getting some uh, mini topics and demonstrations. Yeah. And this is a really good time for anybody who's going to that conference. Uh, if you're going to get a chance to look at what this is, talk to the docs, be in depth. Uh, see what they have to bring to the table um, to enhance your ability to take care of these really sick uh, patients or these really, really tough calls. Uh, this is a real benefit. Um, again, it's it's one of the largest physician response programs in the, in the world. Um, it is a phenomenal resource, and um, you're going to hear much more about that, uh, much more about this coming forward uh, with us. And uh, Dr. Merlin, uh, you know, Thanks for taking time out of your busy day. Great great uh, to be here with you. This
1: was fantastic. All right,
0: great. All right, thanks. So uh, for the overrun, I'm Dan, and uh, we'll talk to you later.